want to talk to you this morning this accusation that Christmas is a pagan holiday. This is it. I want to give you a history lesson. I want to talk to you about the real people involved in the story. And I also want to humanize the Bible characters. A whole bunch of you over the years have told me you have a hard time seeing the Bible characters as real people. Like they're just storybook characters like the other stories that I read. And so I want to humanize them a bit. And then at the end, I do want to just give you the heart of Jesus and what it means to celebrate Christmas and why we do what we do. But there is this continued charge that Christmas has pagan origins and that we're just doing it the way we do it and when we do it because the Catholic Church hijacked the pagan holiday and made everything Christian. How many of you heard that before? How many of you have heard that Jesus' birthday is not December 25th because of the shepherds and other things? Okay, I'm not here to prove anything because I can't, but I just want to throw out some historical numbers and names and some timeline for you here, we, okay? And some Bible stories. So, so one of the charges, the first screen is, uh, one of the charges is that, that uh, the pagans celebrated the winter solstice, which is coming up this week. It's the shortest day of the year in the northern hemisphere, anyway. In the southern hemisphere, their winter solstice is in June. But uh, the sun would get shorter and shorter every day, lower and lower in the sky, and then, and then the days get longer from June 21st or June 22nd. I'm sorry, December 21st or 22nd in the Northern Hemisphere. That was a very popular pagan holiday. But it's not December 25th. Doesn't work. That charge is just, there, there was never a time when the winter solstice was on December 25th. So to say that the Catholic Church in ancient history hijacked the winter solstice and made it a Christian holiday, that would work if it was on the solstice, but it isn't. But the Roman, the Roman Empire had a holiday connected to the winter solstice, next screen, Saturnalia, that was a celebration of the winter solstice, but it was December 17th, and sometimes it would go for a few days, they would celebrate for a week, but it was December 17th through the 23rd, there would be the holiday of Saturnalia in the ancient Roman Empire. So you will read online or you will hear people claim that the Christians just hijacked Saturnalia, changed the name to Christmas, we're going to celebrate Jesus' birthday, but the dates don't match up there either. Saturnalia was a very pagan thing, it was a drunken orgy for a few days, celebrating uh, the end of the sun's descent and the, the turn of the season, and now the days are going to get longer and warmer and, and so on, and it was a popular Roman holiday, but it's not, it's not December 25th, it's not Christmas, the Christians didn't hijack that day. In fact, in the earliest days of the Roman Empire, when Christianity was illegal, they were very careful to never connect themselves with anything that the pagans did. They, they would never have thought of uh, turning Halloween into a trunk or treat or a hallelujah party. Like, that's just not what they would have done. And, and so there isn't any evidence at all that anybody said, hey, let's turn Saturnalia into Christmas. Although people on the internet with their keyboard warriors want to tell us that, that Christianity is, just has these pagan or, origins. But there is a Roman holiday that was on December 25th, and it is Sol Invictus, the birth of the sun, the undying sun or the unconquerable sun. It was December 25th. But here's the timeline. It's fascinating. So the charge is 
well, the Christians just took over Sol Invictus. It's a pagan holiday, but because, in, in an attempt to make everybody Christian, they just turned it into the birthday of Jesus. We don't really know that Jesus was born then, and it's because it's got its pagan origins, we can't celebrate it. Here's the, here's the real timeline. Emperor Aurelian, whose picture is on the coin there on the left, Aurelian, do you see the word aura in his name? In Latin, it's the aura is the sun. Hello? With me? Okay. So Aurelian wanted to connect himself with the sun, so he started a sun-worshipping cult during his reign as emperor of Rome. In 274 AD, he invented this holiday called Sol Invictus, the undying sun or the unconquerable sun. But we have no idea what his date was. When did they celebrate it? We don't know. But it wasn't December 25th. We know that for sure. And I'll show, I'll show you why in a minute. Um, we just know that he wanted the sun to be worshipped in connection with himself. He wanted him to be worshipped in connection with the sun. All of the Roman Caesars received worship, which is why the Christians went to the lions uh, and the gladiator arenas, because they wouldn't throw incense onto the fire that burned in front of the statue of the Caesars. If you know anything about your Christian history, you know that a lot of our ancestors went to the mouths of the lions or all sorts of hideous tortures in the gladiator arenas because they wouldn't worship the emperor. So Aurelian is not asking for anything new when he has the people worship him. He's just connecting it with the sun in a way that previous emperors had not done because that's his name. Because his name connects him with the sun. So 274, 270 years after Jesus, he, he invents this holiday, Sol Invictus. But 50 years after him, Constantine becomes the first Christian emperor of Rome. And when he is converted to Christianity, not only does he legalize Christianity, he makes it the official religion of Rome, and everybody now has to be a Christian. So we instantly go from Christians meeting in basements and catacombs and back rooms and tunnels and out in the woods to being able to meet in public, and then they start building cathedrals, and everything is public, and everybody must be a Christian now. I'm sure their conversions were very authentic when the king says, oh, you have to be a Christian now. All right, so Sol Invictus was outlawed, as well as all the worship of Jupiter and Mars and Venus and Mercury and all the, all the other gods, and everybody had to be a Christian. But a few emperors later, 40 years later, next guy, in 362, there's a, the emperor's name is Julian. Julian was raised as a Christian, and he started his rule as a Christian. He ruled for less than two years. In 362, he decided, I'm not going to be a Christian. I reject Jesus Christ. I'm taking Rome back to our previous gods and goddesses and the pagan religion. So he banned Christianity, and he brought back Sol Invictus. And it was him in... 362 that said, I'm changing the date to December 25th. That's how we know that it wasn't December 25th before that, because he said, I'm setting the date as December 25th. 362 years after Jesus is when Sol Invictus is set on December 25th. Why would an emperor who wants to reject Christianity and wipe it out of his empire, why would he pick an idolatrous holiday on December 25th on purpose. 
because the Christians were celebrating the birth of Jesus on that day already. Hello? Anybody home? Yes. Next guy. We're going back 158 years to 204. St. Hippolytus, or Hippolytus, wrote, The first advent of our Lord in the flesh when he was born in Bethlehem was eight days before the calends of January. Calends means the first day of the month. It is where we get the English word calendar. 204, 70 years before Sola Invictus was even invented, and 160 years before it was set on December 25, we've got Christians saying Jesus was born on December 25. African Christians in the 200s were celebrating um, December 25 as the birthday of Jesus in the 200s. So the charge that the Christians just hijacked Sol Invictus and made it a Christian, uh, Christian holiday, the, uh, the truth is actually the exact opposite. The pagans hijacked Christmas trying to make it pagan. So... There is much debate on whether Jesus was actually born on, 20, on December 25th. I'm not here to tell you that I know anything for sure. Uh, there is the Eastern Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox Church. They celebrate on January 6th. There's, there's a bunch of different ideas on when Jesus was born. And I'm not here to give you, say that I know any facts. I'm just here to throw this out. That, that the charge that it was a pagan holiday that the Christians co-opted, is not true. There's no evidence of that anywhere at all through history. But is it possible that Jesus actually was born on the 25th? Next slide, Tanner. Thank you. You've all heard that it can't be December 25th because of the shepherds, because the ewes are having their lambs in the spring. So like March through June is when the lambing season is. And so that's when the shepherds spent the night out with their ewes because they had to Make sure that the lambing process went smooth. How many of you heard that? Okay, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. He was actually born in the spring. You've heard that. Okay. So maybe, maybe, but it doesn't rule out anything because if you were to fly to Israel today, right today, this week, and you go to Israel and you go outside of the city, guess what you would see all over the hillsides? Sheeps and goats. Everywhere. I don't know if you'd see shepherds, but you'd see probably people watching over them. But you would see animals outside because Israel is Mediterranean, warm climate. They don't need a lot of hay. In fact, they almost make no hay at all because they don't have snow. Um, their latitude and the latitude of Bethlehem is south of San Diego. It's south of Phoenix. It's south of Atlanta. It's north of Tampa, but barely. I mean, it's it's warm. Now they have a rainy season. It's a winter. It's cold. It can snow in the mountain peaks um, in Israel. But they don't need hay. The animals just stay out and graze all year round. And somebody's got to watch them. And lambing doesn't have to happen in the spring. Just Friday night, harvest is at the ballet recital with some friends. And the barn cam showed that there was, was it a sheep or a goat? Yeah, a, a ewe went into labor and, and lambs were being born. So they had to leave the ballet recital and go catch the lambs. A week before Christmas. I mean, you can breed a ewe anytime you want, really. I mean, if you're the shepherd, you can, you're in charge of when, when your livestock is breeding and when they're birthing. And so it doesn't have to happen in the spring. And I want to remind you of the video I showed you last Christmas Eve service of Migdal Ader, 
Remember that? The shepherd's tower? Then the outside of Bethlehem is a protected watchtower, walled pasture where they raise the Passover lambs. And that's what Micah 5.2 is referring to when he says that the Messiah was coming from Bethlehem, Ephrath. That means the, the countryside or the farmland around Bethlehem. And in Micah chapter 4, he talks about the tower, that the shepherds in the, in the tower. And there are shepherds' watchtowers all over the countryside outside of Bethlehem where they had these protected sheep that were not allowed to intermix, to breed with the other sheep in the country because these sheep had been raised for generations and they mostly used through white lambs that didn't have spot or color in them at all and they were used for the Passover sacrifice. And it makes all the sense in the world that Jesus is born as God's lamb who takes away the sin of the world in the, place where the, in the town where the Passover lambs are literally raised. So those shepherds that watched the Passover lambs they were special shepherds. They were on duty 24-7, 365. And these lambs were, were coddled. They were babied. They were pampered and spoiled lambs. Uh, and, they were, and it just makes all the sense that there would have been shepherds in the field with those lambs all the time. And so, if it was those shepherds, I'm not saying that any of this proves uh, that Jesus was born on December 25th. I'm just saying... You can't rule it out because of the shepherds. It's not, that's not a slam dunk argument. There is another Bible story that gives us a hint as to when Jesus might have been born. And it's the story of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And I want to read to you from Luke chapter 1. And again, I understand that, that this doesn't prove anything watertight. It's not my point. I'm not here to debate or argue with anybody. I'm not even here to outfit you to argue with anybody else. But I know that this idea is common, and I just want to present you with the possibility that the, the story is true and that what we celebrate is real. So let's go to Luke chapter 1. During the reign of King Herod the Great of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah who served in the temple as part of the priestly order of Abijah. I will tell you what a priestly order is in a minute. But just keep Abijah in your mind. He is Zechariah is of the order of Abijah, and he's serving his shift in the temple. His wife Elizabeth was also from a family of priests and was a descendant of Aaron. His wife Elizabeth was also from a family of priests and a descendant of Aaron. Okay, so to be a priest, you had to be a direct descendant of the family of Aaron. All of the Levites served in the temple. The Levites, anybody in the tribe of Levi got to sacrifice animals out at the altar and cook the meat and put the blood on the altar, but only the priests, the family of Aaron, could go into the holy place and eat the showbread and light the lights and minister the incense, and only the high priest for the year could go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was behind the curtain. They only went in once a year on the Day of Atonement to put the blood on, on the mercy seat there. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are Aaron's descendants. Who is related to Elizabeth? Mary. Mary is related to Elizabeth. We're not told how, we're just told they're a relative. The general scholarly consensus is that Elizabeth was Mary's aunt on her mother's side. Uh, Mary's mom and Elizabeth are sisters. It's not provable, it's just the general consensus. What tribe did Jesus come from? Judah. He's the king, he's the lion of Judah, he's the descendant of David. 
but he is also our great high priest. This is how Jesus is legally, in all every fair sense, he is, God didn't cheat at all. Mary, Mary's mother was a descendant of Aaron. While her father was a descendant of Judah. So, Elizabeth is of the line of Aaron. They're both righteous before God, living virtuously, following the commandments of the Lord blamelessly. They were, both chi- they were childless since Elizabeth was barren, and now they are both quite old. Um, they're probably in their 70s, and they have no children. She had been barren since her youth. One day, Zechariah's priestly order was on duty, and he was serving as priest. He was chosen by the casting of lots, according to the custom of the priesthood, so the honor fell upon Zechariah to enter the holy place and burn incense before the Lord. Inside the temple, there's two rooms. The front room is the holy place, where there's a table with bread and, and, a, and a, a lampstand and some other things. And then right in front of the curtain is the altar of incense. It's about the size of this podium right here. And they would burn incense at sunrise and at sunset every day, 365, every day. Sunrise and sunset were burning incense. And the curtain was right in front of it. And right on the other side of the curtain is the holy holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And they only went in there once a year. So Zechariah is standing at the altar of incense like every priest does every morning, every evening. They burn incense on this altar and they would sing praise to the Lord. They would, it would, they would be singing scripture, um, possibly some psalms, partly some, possibly some things out of the law. And he's worshiping before the Lord and there is a, loud, a large crowd of worshipers that gathered to pray outside the temple at an hour when the incense was being offered. Remember the large crowd. I want to point that out. We'll come back to that later. There's a large crowd. All at once, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing just to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was startled and overwhelmed with fear, but the angel reassured him, saying, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God is showing grace to you. For I have come to tell you that your prayer for a child has been answered. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. His birth will bring much joy and gladness. Many will rejoice because of him, and he will be one of the great ones in the sight of God. The angel Gabriel comes and stands Immediately here by the altar, Zechariah panics. Gabriel says, don't be afraid. I'm coming to bring you good news. It always happens that everybody freaks out when they see an angel. And uh, angels always have to calm them down. He says, Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. Your wife is going to get pregnant. God is going to do another miracle here like he did with Abraham and Sarah, where an old woman who's way past menopause, way past ovulation, is going to get pregnant. And God's going to do a miracle in her womb. And he says, your prayer for a child has been answered. The verb tense about the the word prayer there, the verb tense that the angel uses is past perfect. So it would be fully legitimate to translate it this way. The prayer you used to pray but quit has been answered. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I want to drive this home. You all got to get this. The angel says, you know what? That prayer you prayed in desperation, when you were 20, it was like, oh, we're not having babies. Oh, I'm 30 now, God. Please give me a child. God, I'm 45. I want a baby. God, I'm, I'm 55. It ain't going to happen, is it? Oh, God. 65? I haven't prayed that prayer for 20 years. Angel says, the prayer you used to pray but quit is getting answered today. 
Some of you have a prayer or a dream, a hope, and it sure doesn't look like God answered it. He may get around to it 50 years from now. Seriously. He can do a miracle. If he can open Elizabeth's womb when she's in her 70s, maybe even older. We don't know. If he can do that, God remembers the prayers that you prayed. Come on, come on. He remembers the prayers that you prayed. Your prayer does not ever have an expiration date on it. If it's his will, it will happen. So the angel comes and says, the prayer that you used to pray but quit for a child has been answered. Elizabeth is going to bear you a son. Next screen, continuing on the passage. He will drink no wine or strong drink, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even while still in his mother's womb. He will persuade many in Israel to convert and turn back to the Lord their God. He will go before the Lord as a forerunner with the same power and anointing as Elijah the prophet. He will be instrumental in turning the hearts of the fathers in tenderness back to their children and the hearts of the disobedient back to the wisdom of their righteous fathers. He will prepare a united people who are ready for the Lord's appearing. Amen. Skipping to verse 26. So I need to tell you what we just skipped. So the angel tells all this to Zechariah, and Zechariah stands here in stunned silence, and he says, I'm a really old man, and my wife's a really old woman. How is this going to happen? You're going to have to give me a sign. And Gabriel is incensed. He's like, dude, an angel is talking to you. What else more sign do you need? He's like, you know what? Because you didn't believe, you're going to be mute. And while your wife is pregnant, you're not going to be allowed to speak so that you don't mess this up. God's going to shut your voice, and you're not going to speak until he's born, until you obey God and name him John. So he comes out of the temple, and, he, and the crowd is waiting on him. What's taking him so long? He must be seeing a vision. And he, and he was, but he came out, and he couldn't speak, and he had to write. Um, anyway, his shift is over at the end of the week, and he goes home, and Elizabeth gets pregnant. And six months into her pregnancy, she's six months pregnant, the angel Gabriel was sent from God's presence to an unmarried girl named Mary, living in Nazareth, a village in Galilee, and she was engaged to a man named Joseph, a true descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her, same angel that appeared to Zechariah is now six months later appearing to Mary. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Rejoice, beloved young woman, for the Lord is with you and you are anointed with great favor. Mary was deeply troubled over the words of the angel and bewildered over what this may mean for her. But the angel reassured her, saying, Do not yield to your fear, Mary, for the Lord has found delight in you and has chosen to surprise you with a wonderful gift. You will become pregnant with a baby boy, and you are to name him Jesus. And he will be supreme and will be known as the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will enthrone him as king of the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign as king of Israel forever, and his reign will have no limit. And then we skip a few verses here. So Mary, pregnant now with Jesus or afterward, arose and hurried off to the hill country of Judea to the village where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. And arriving at their home, Mary entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. And at that moment, her aunt heard Mary's voice. The baby within Elizabeth's womb jumped and kicked. John, who is a six-month-old fetus, and Jesus, who has just been conceived by the Holy Spirit and Mary, they meet, and John jumps in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the clearest biblical proof that an unborn child is a person and is aware of God and the Spirit of God, and John worships Jesus even from the womb. So there's the story that I need to read to you. Now let's go back and draw some stuff out of this. Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb when Elizabeth is six months pregnant. So John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. So when we get to that part in the story where they're adult men, they're both like 30 years old. 
Okay, it doesn't say exactly, it just says he was around 30. And so John would have been 30 or 31 when he's baptizing people in the Jordan River in the Gospels. So Mary is pregnant when she meets Elizabeth, because John is responding to the presence of Jesus. And then, I don't have it on the screen for you, but Mary stays with Elizabeth three months and then leaves and Elizabeth gives birth. The Bible doesn't say if Mary stays for the birth and then leaves or, or what, but Mary is with Elizabeth three months. Elizabeth gives birth. Six months later, Mary gives birth. That's what we know for sure. There's your Bible. What else can we know? Well, we, we heard that Zach is of the order of Abijah. Okay, so a priestly order is this. Aaron had 24 sons and grandsons that became groups of priests. Each family's line became an order of priests. So Abijah is, is, is either Aaron's son or grandson, and, and their descendants forever are the priests, and there are thousands of priests, and the, each order serves one week, and then there's 23 other groups of priests that come and serve. So every 24 weeks, they're on a shift. What a job to work two weeks a year. And show up at the temple, burn the incense before God morning and evening, offer some animal sacrifices, worship the Lord, pray, and then go home. I, obviously, they had to tend their flocks and their garden and stuff when they're at home. They're all, everybody in those days would have been some sort of subsistence farmer. But only two weeks a year is when they served in their various order. And we have no idea from the Bible when the order of Abijah served in the year. We don't know. But from history, we do. We can jump forward to 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed it. They just got tired of Jewish rebellion over and over again, so they just flattened the city. And one of the historians that records this recorded, oh, and while this was happening, the order of such and such was serving in the temple when it was destroyed. So we know what week that order served. We know all 24 orders. They're in, they're in uh, Nehemiah and they're in Leviticus. We can just go back, count backward. Oh, the order of Abijah served the last week in September. Which also tells us why there was a large crowd. This incense offering that Zechariah is offering when the angel appears happens every morning and every night. It's not going to draw a crowd. But in the last week of September, it's our month September, but in the last week of September is the Day of Atonement. During the week when Abijah's order served, sometimes it's late September, other times it's early October, is the Day of Atonement. And that's when the crowd would have come for the most holy day on the entirety of Jewish calendar. Is this is the day when we offer the blood on the mercy seat and we get absolved of our sins. So that's not what Zechariah was doing, but this is why the crowd was there, because it was that week. So we can know it's late September. Nine months later is the end of June. When John is born, the Catholic Church has always said John the Baptist's birthday was June 24th. How did they figure that out? I don't know. Maybe somebody was there. <laughs> Seriously, the feast of St. John the Baptist is June 24th. Jesus is six months younger. Six, year, six months from June 24 is December 24. Well, they're not going to be exactly to the day, six months apart. And that assumes a lot. It assumes that Elizabeth got immediately pregnant. It assumes that Mary got immediately pregnant. It assumes, it assumes a lot. 
But my only point is, it's totally possible. Not that I'm not here to prove with any watertight certainty that it is. I'm just saying it, no one can claim that it's not Jesus' birthday because it's totally possible, combining Scripture with history, we can, it could have worked out that Jesus was born at the end of December, like Christians in the 200s thought, because there is another source that is a lot of authority, and that's Mary. Mary was around for Jesus' birth. And then she was around during his whole ministry. And then she was around at the cross. And then she was around on the day he ascended into heaven in the clouds. And she was present at the upper room on the day of Pentecost. She's named. She's there. All the apostles knew Mary. All the entire church knew Mary. She was there for it all. She's James and Jude's mom. The guys who wrote the, book, the Bible books of James and Jude. She's their mom. She's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the fishermen family. She's their aunt. Their mother is her sister. Uh, like A lot of people know her very, very well. Luke obviously interviewed her for his gospel because she's the main character in Luke. Joseph is the main character in Matthew's Christmas story. So he obviously talked to Joseph. Um, Luke obviously talked to Mary. There would have been people around who could ask Mary, when did it happen? Um, John, her nephew, John the Apostle, died around age 90 in the year 100. Both of those are estimates, but close. John is about 10 or maybe 12 years younger than Jesus, which is why we think he could even have been a teenager when he's walking around with Jesus and the 12 in the Gospels. He could have been 17, 18, 19 years old when Jesus is 30. John lived to the year 100. He knew his Aunt Mary with me very very well by the year 200 we've got groups of christians saying jesus was born on december 25th a hundred years after john's death the last apostle to die who personally walked with jesus we got people historically writing down jesus was born on december 25th a hundred years is not that long do we know what happened in 1922 pretty well now, granted, we've got film and radio and sound recordings, and they didn't. But the oldest people in this room, when they were young, you knew people alive in 1922. My grandma was born in 1923, and she just died a couple years ago. I've known her all my life. My, my wife, Sarah, and Kale, her brother that you all know, Sarah and Kale's grandpa, not her great-grandpa, her grandpa was born in 1898. A hundred and twenty-four years ago. Well, Ezekiel's great-grandpa. Yeah, and my kids too. But, but like, so Sarah knew, her, knew him till she was in junior high. Somebody born in the 1800s. And when, if he told her stories, are they accurate? Or is that oral history that might be mythology? Nobody would consider that. My dad is 71 years old. His great-grandpa, who was alive till my dad was nine, was born before the Civil War. So when my dad, growing up, he's seven, eight, nine years old, he heard stories about Abraham Lincoln from a man who was alive when it happened. My dad, who's 71 years old. My great, his great-grandpa told him, 
My mom grabbed us one day and shoved us all behind the woodpile and knocked the woodpile over on us to hide us because the Jesse James gang came to our farm and they, took, they went into our kitchen and stole all the food and pulled all the clothes off the clothesline and rode on. And from the hole in the woodpile, he watched Jesse James rob their farm. My dad knew a guy that lived that. In the 1860s. My point is, in the year 200, there's major groups of Christians saying Jesus' birthday is December 25. That's not too far away from somebody who knew John 100 years ago who said that that was the, what it was. I know it proves nothing, and I'm not trying to prove anything, and I'm not trying to equip you to argue with people. I'm just saying you don't have to believe it when the keyboard warrior online says that you're a pagan. And it's perfectly possible that we are actually celebrating Jesus' birthday. Because Mary. Because Mary. So, then there are other people who would say that, well, it doesn't matter whether it's the 25th or not. The way we celebrate is pagan. We're just taking pagan elements like Christmas trees and Advent candles and wreaths and, and that sort of stuff. And, and we turn them into Christian symbols and... So it's unlawful to have a Christmas tree or a wreath or whatever. And the, the Christian church did take a lot of pagan traditions and turn them into Christian traditions, some of which is very bad, but some of which is okay. It's all right. There were Greek religions that baptized people before John the Baptist ever did. John the Baptist just took that ritual and made it about Jesus. There are some things, like animal sacrifice, existed a long time before God gave Moses the law. But God just said, okay, we're going to do this, but we're going to do it to me, not these other false gods. So it's a pretty well-established historical fact. Christmas trees are a Druid tradition from Northern Europe, the Pagan Celts, before they became Christians, they would cut trees down and decorate them sometimes with candles and whatever for their pagan holidays. And the Christians came in and told them about Jesus, and, and they turned into a Christmas tree. So what? I don't know anybody that worships their Christmas tree. Seriously. The scripture that I've been told by people trying to argue with me, they're like, well, Jeremiah says you go into the woods and you cut it down and you, you decorate it with gold and you bow down and worship it. And when you get on your knees in front of it to put the gifts under it, you're worshiping your tree. I'm like, I'm on my knees every morning in front of my wood stove. I ain't praying to it. You know, I don't have a garage that any of my vehicles fit in, so I do all my mechanic on a cardboard sheet in my driveway and I'm, fr I'm on my knees in front of my vehicles a bunch. I'm like, I... I here, here, is, here is my real point, that the people who are afraid of form don't understand worship. If, if, if they think that you're going to stand before Jesus on Judgment Day when all of your life is on display for everyone to see, everything good and bad you've done, Jesus says, you know what, you were a really faithful disciple and I love you and you forgave the people that I told you to forgive, and you were generous, and you served, and you sacrificed, but dang it, I got to send you to hell because you had a tree in your house for a week every year. Like, you don't know Jesus. Seriously. Because form 
is not the point. Faith is the point. Meaning is the point. The girls can come up here and dance all they want, and it would be beautiful dance, and if their heart is not for, to give glory to Jesus, it's completely meaningless. And somebody else could get up here and dance like a hippo in a tutu, and they're all for Jesus, and it isn't beautiful at all, and it's ugly and distracting, and that's why I don't do it. But it, when your heart is for Jesus, seriously, uh, maybe it's billions, I don't know, millions of Muslim practitioners get on their knees six times a day and bow and bow and bow and bow to a God they don't know and never will without Jesus. Bowing on their knees means nothing. But when you're, if your heart is for Jesus, maybe you would rather stand. Maybe you would rather lay on your face. My point is form Jesus is not interested in form. He's interested in the, the intent of your heart and real faith. So, so, yeah, Christmas trees have a pagan history, and they've been co-opted by Christians to make it a celebration of Jesus. Okay, so does God have a problem with that? Well, maybe he does or maybe he doesn't. It depends on our faith. I don't know anybody that has faith in their Christmas tree to do anything. I don't, it's just beautiful. It's decoration. It's It's lovely. If we're going to be afraid of everything that has a pagan root, so these, these, with some exceptions, these folks who are scared of Christmas also refuse to celebrate Easter or to call it Easter because that's named after a pagan god, the Persian god Astarte. Well, two things about that. That doesn't work in any language except English because all of the other languages of the world call Resurrection Sunday Paschal or Pascal, and it's related to the Hebrew word for Passover. And um, in every single other language, it's called Passover. And we know it's connected with Passover, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But in English, it's called Easter. Don't know how that's connected to an ancient Persian goddess, but let's, let's give them a freebie. Let's say, okay, right, okay? Easter is, is named after Astarte, this mysterious Persian goddess from 3,000 years ago. But if that's true, uh, the book of Esther is also named after that same goddess. You know, Esther's name is not Esther. Her name's Hadassah. Her, her, and, and she was given a pagan name when she became queen, named after a demon idol goddess. And that's the name God chooses as an eternal word to use for the book of the life of her story. How many of you know who Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are? That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their real names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Their pagan names are the, word, the names God chooses to record in his eternal word. Come on, in the New Testament, there's an apostle named Apollos. If you were here three weeks ago, you should know who he's named after. The king of hell, Apollyon. He's, he's, he's a disciple of Jesus. Apollos, I don't know why he didn't change his name when he got saved. Because like our missionary in India, Dr. Wesley, his real name is Krishna, something or other. And when he got baptized in the Holy Spirit and full of Jesus, he's like, I'm not going to be named after a demon. So he, he just picked an English name, Theodore Wesley. And it's just uh, great. Praise God. I don't really know why Apollos didn't change his name. That's a pretty ugly guy to be named after. But God and Apollos and everybody else in the church knew him as Apollos. So, okay. Let's call Easter Easter. Let's have a Christmas tree. Let's not, be, let's not be too worried about it. 
Uh, we don't want anything to do with pagan practices. I'm not, I'm, not, sorry, I'm not saying that. We don't want anything to do with pagan practices. But just because something had a meaning 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago doesn't mean that's what I mean today. If we're going to throw out pagan names, you, you can't. You got to throw out all the names of the days of the week. Saturn's day and sun's day and moon's day and Thor's day and Woden's day. Friar's Day. Come on. Again, I'm not here to equip you for an argument. But what I want to do is to equip you with some real history and even just some assurance um, that Christmas is okay. And it might actually even be accurate. But don't fall into an antichrist spirit of condemning everything and judging other Christians. We have to bear with the brother of weaker faith. So those that think we are of weaker faith because we have a Christmas tree, they have to bear with us. We have to bear with them. Yes? Amen. Amen. And there are some people who are very gracious about it. And there are others, the majority of the people who have picked this argument with me are now not walking with the Lord at all, which is why I have an issue with it. Um, because it, it manifests in, in people who are proud and want to know something that no one else knows and judge other people. There are some exceptions to that, but not very many. Don't fall for it. I was going to tell you all about Santa Claus too, but I got out of time. <laughs> St. Nick's a real dude, and he's really great. He's a good man. Yeah, yeah, he's a real guy. Um, likely an orphan, so he loved kids and wanted to take care of them. He really did put money in socks and set it inside people's window in the night, families that were poor. Um, he fought for the real Jesus. He, uh, at the Council of Nicaea, which was the original council that legalized Christianity in Rome, um, there was a lot of heresy there. There was men there claiming that Jesus was only human, that he wasn't divine, and uh, St. Nick was one of the defenders of Jesus' divinity. And uh, obviously he's been turned into a character, but the real man was great. And he really did give gifts and had nothing to do with reindeer or elves. But Merry Christmas. God bless you all.